So we are in Romans chapter 9. If you don't have a Bible, uh, then you can get one of the black Bibles on the end of each pew. And in that Bible, it's on page 945. We're looking especially today at Romans 9, verses 9 through 13. But I'm going to read for us starting back in verse 6, uh, just to give us a little bit of context of getting into these verses. It says this, uh, But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, In order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of him who works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Let me, I think I'm on. There we go. All right. So we are getting into the portion of Romans chapter 9 today, and we'll be sort of in this portion for the next uh, two weeks beyond this also that that deals with what we call the doctrine of election, the doctrine of election. We're looking today at God's purpose in election. You may notice on the back of the bulletin, if you have your bulletin, that we're going to see the subject of God's election, the timing of God's election, and the reason for God's election and how God's election relates to God's love. But I just want to ask, first of all, is this okay to talk about? Can we talk about God's election? Is this strange? Is this a doctrine that is weird? Well, I do want to uh, just say that it's a blessing to be able to look back and to see the original founding documents of this church and one of the articles of faith that this church wrote into its founding documents on the day that it was begun, on October 22nd, 1850, they said this together, that all who have ever been or will be brought to repentance and faith in the gospel were chosen in Christ to salvation before the foundation of the world, according to 1 Peter 1-2, Ephesians 1-4, and that in consequence of the love of God to them, the Holy Ghost is sent to effect the work of regeneration in their hearts. And so this is a founding principle of this church from all the way back in 1850, is the idea that God didn't save us because we chose to have faith in Jesus, but instead we have faith in Jesus because God chose to save us. And so it's been something that has been cherished at this church from the very earliest days, and I guess you could say from literally the earliest day of this church But there's also the question, just even if it's true, even if we say that we believe this together, is it okay to talk about the doctrine of election, have a sermon about the doctrine of election? There's there's three questions there. Is it acceptable? Is it appropriate? Is it applicable? First of all, is is it acceptable to teach? There are those out there who, when we get to a doctrine like this that's taught here in Romans 9, they'll sometimes refer to it with a term like the doctrines of John Calvin. They'll say, well, this is, you know, it's, it's almost this idea. These doctrines are often referred to with the term Calvinism. And so sometimes people will talk about John Calvin and say, oh, well, why, why are you preaching something as though it were in the Bible when it was made up by this guy, John Calvin, in the 1500s? 
Well, I got to say, it was not made up by this guy, John Calvin, in the 1500s. He never had any idea of what people would call Calvinism. He was trying to teach the Bible, but if you want to go back before Calvin, you could go more than a thousand years before him and see the exact same truths being taught by a guy named Augustine. So rather than Calvinism, you could call this Augustinianism. And if you want to go back before Augustine, you could go all the way back into the New Testament to the book of Revelation, where you have the teaching that those who are saved are those whose names have been written in the Lamb's book of life from before the foundation of the world. And so you could say, well, this is Johnism after the Apostle John. Or you could go back before the book of Revelation into 1 Peter, where Peter teaches that we are the elect. And you could say, well, this is Peterism. Or you could go back before that. You could go where we are right here in Romans or in various other places like Ephesians 1 where, where the Apostle Paul clearly teaches these doctrines. And you could say, well, this is Paulism. Or you could go back to John 6 and see where Jesus teaches these doctrines. You could say, this is Jesusism. But what are we trying to do here? Well, we're, we're trying to say, here's what the Bible says. The idea here is not to teach the doctrines of man. The idea here is to teach the doctrines of God that have been delivered to us in the Holy Scriptures by the Holy Spirit. So is it acceptable to teach this? Yes, because it's here for us in the Scripture. But there's another question. Is it appropriate to teach this? This is one of the ways that I, uh, one of the very few ways, I should say, that I, I tend to disagree with some of the 17th century Puritans in their writings. I've seen multiple quotes from multiple Puritans who have said something like, of course we affirm this doctrine of election, but it's something that is for the mature. We don't teach this to those who are immature in their faith. We don't let unbelievers know about this. We wait until somebody is mature and ready, and then we teach them about the doctrine of election. Well, I kind of understand that because it is something that's a little harder to wrap your mind around than some other things in the Scriptures. But what the Bible tells us in places like Acts 20 is not to shrink back from declaring the whole counsel of God. If this is here in the Scriptures, we're not to say, well, we're going to shrink back. We're just going to skip this. We're going to save this. We'll just maybe kind of mention that it exists and pass over it and teach that in a deeper class. No, it says don't shrink back from declaring the whole counsel of God. And in 2 Corinthians 4, it says what we do is not to keep things secret, but we have an open declaration of the truth. We in Christ are to take the veil off of everything. What Jesus has whispered in the secret places, now that he's risen from the dead, we are to proclaim from the housetops. And so we trust that it is not only acceptable, but appropriate, because it's right here in the Bible. And we want to declare the whole counsel of God as we come to this portion of Scripture about it. The third question is, is it applicable? When we talk about the doctrine of election, does it have anything to do with your actual life? Well, I'll say two things about that. One is that if God has put something in the Scripture, it doesn't particularly matter whether you can figure out how it applies to your life because he's put it there on purpose and he has told you that all Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable, even if we haven't figured out how yet. But even if you don't figure out how, it's because we want to know and love God. It's because we want to know God. That's the whole point of everything. So that's one thing. It doesn't particularly matter if it's applicable, if God has told it to us, But even though we know what it is. But also, 
our own statement of faith here at this church lists out some great ways that this is applicable. And I love it. In our statement of faith, which is the 1853, not 1833, but 1853 version of the New Hampshire Baptist Confession, it says this in Article 9 about God's purpose of grace, about election, the eternal purpose of God. It says that it is a most glorious display of God's sovereign goodness, being infinitely free, wise, holy, and unchangeable. And here's some of the ways that it's it's useful. It says that it utterly excludes boasting. If we have any temptation to boast or to boast about our own salvation or to boast about the fact that we were the kind of person who would believe, well, this puts it down. It says we got to boast in God alone who elects unconditionally. It, it, it utterly excludes boasting, that it promotes humility. It puts man low and puts God high that it promotes love because God has first loved us, that it promotes prayer because we see the sovereignty of God in all things and what could there be that's more powerful for us to do than to ask God to do. It promotes humility, love, prayer, praise. Well, that's always something that we can do when we look and we see here is the glorious grace of God that he's poured out on us undeserving sinners. That ought to turn us to worship to praise Him. It promotes praise. It promotes trust in God, knowing that He's the one who's in control of all things from eternity past. It promotes active imitation of His free mercy, which means when we see the doctrine of election, we know that when God has decided to show mercy to someone, it's not as a repayment because they were worth showing mercy. It's free mercy. And when we see this, that it ought to move us to freely show mercy to people around us, even if they've sinned against us like we've sinned against God, that he's freely merciful, and that it encourages the use of means in the highest degree, which means that it encourages evangelism. When we have in front of us the doctrine that God chooses who to save, it doesn't kill evangelism if we understand it rightly, It encourages us going and telling the gospel to people with the confidence God has actually chosen to save incredibly unlikely people. And the way that he's going to do it is through the preaching of the gospel. And so we can go out with confidence about that, and that's what our statement of faith says. It also says that it is the foundation, that election is the foundation of Christian assurance. Guys, that's true. If God chose you based on something about you, on your likelihood to believe, then boy, couldn't he just as, as likely unchoose you because you, you slip and falter in that belief? Well, if God has elected from before the foundation of the world, he's going to carry it out to eternity future. So, just to say that, yes, it is applicable. It is uh, appropriate. It is called for, what what were those three A's I said? It is acceptable, it is appropriate, and it is applicable for us to look at this. All that just to say, I have to preface this because there are those among our brothers and sisters in Christ who are genuine brothers and sisters in Christ that we deeply love who think that talking about these kinds of things is just off base, whether it's because they disagree with it or because they think that it stirs up controversy or whatever reason. Here's what we want to do. We want to appreciate what God has told us what he's laid out here clearly for us in the Scriptures. And I think it is pretty clear here in the Scriptures. 
And, and we, we want to see it. We want to rejoice in it. And we want to not shrink back from declaring the whole counsel of God as God lays it out for us verse by verse here in the book of Romans. We want to have an open declaration of the truth. So as we talk about the doctrine of election, let's see first of all in verses 9 and 10 the subject of God's election. By the way, what do I mean when I say the word election? This is a word that's here in the Bible. It's in verse 11. It's a a lot of other places in the Bible as well. God's purpose of election, it means God choosing who to save. That's the most basic thing that we're talking about. God choosing who it is that he will grant the gift of faith and salvation in Jesus Christ to. And you see, first of all, the subjects of God's election. It says this. I'll go back to verse 8, even though we're kind of sort of technically starting in verse 9. It is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as God's offspring. As he had just said before that, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. In verse 9, this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. So, first of all, you see the subject of God's election that he gives an Old Testament example that Isaac was chosen, and by extension, not Ishmael. Now, if you don't have any idea who I'm talking about, let me fill you in just a little bit. I encourage you to to read the book of Genesis. Maybe some of you are reading through Genesis right now in your Bible reading plan. Maybe maybe you've, you've seen this there and you know this story well, but maybe you don't. Well, God had come to a man named Abraham and had called him out of paganism. He was serving false gods, but he called him out of paganism. And he he told him that through him, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. He made a covenant with Abraham and told him that God would give him a son through him and his wife, Sarah, even in their old age. Even though they were old people, even though Sarah had already gone through menopause decades before that, undoubtedly, that God would do this. Now, after a little bit of time, even though it does say in Genesis 15 that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, it seems like there might have been a little bit of faltering because because after a while, Sarah finally said, okay, take my servant Hagar and go and you can have a child with her so that you'll have some kind of offspring. And he did that shouldn't have done that, but he did that. And so there was this son whose name was Ishmael, who technically was the firstborn son of Abraham. And yet God had said, no, I'm going to give you the child of the promise through Sarah. And there was this verse in Genesis 18.10, the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. Now Sarah heard that. She overheard that, and it seemed crazy to her seemed laughable. But in Genesis 21, it says, the Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age. By the way, not just his old age, her old age too. At the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac, which means laughter. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. 
God did it. He, and it says here, and points out what you can pick up on pretty easily by reading Genesis, that God chose Isaac as the son of the promise and not Ishmael. And then you get to the next son after that, Isaac's son, Jacob. What it says about this, not only so, but also when Rebekah, that's Isaac's wife. So after chosen, promised child Isaac had grown up, he had a wife named Rebekah. But it says, when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac. Now, when it says by one man, it's saying in, in one conception. We're talking here about twins, that there were these twins in the womb. You know, you, you could potentially say, oh, well, with, with Abraham and Hagar and Sarah, that was really about which, which wife it was or which woman. Well, with Rebecca, you can't say that. And in fact, it's not, it's not even just that. It's th- th- these kids came at the same time. They're sharing a womb together. They're twins. But, but it says, though they were not yet born, had done nothing either good or bad, in verse 12, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. We'll get to what that's talking about in a little bit. But just right now, we can see with the children of Isaac that God chose Jacob and not Esau. This was something that God decided before they were conceived, before they were born. This is something that is spoken of in Malachi chapter 1, which Bob read for us at the beginning of the service, where God says to the people of Israel, I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Boy, that's not, that's a, that's a rough question to ask God, but here, here's God's answer. Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. Now he reminds them that God had chosen this people of Israel out of the line of Jacob, but this is applied here in Romans 9 to say it's not just about the choice of a nation, it's about the choice of an individual. God chose Jacob and not Esau. And what does God do? Well, he chooses individuals to save, not just nations to bless. There are some who come to this passage, those who deny the doctrine of election, and they still know that Romans 9 is in the Bible, and they have to figure out what to do with it. And usually the thing that they do with it is they say, well, what this is talking about is God's choice to bless a nation, not his choice to save an individual. Well, let me tell you five reasons why that's not what Romans 9 is about. You ready? You writing down all five reasons? Okay. Number one. Even when God makes distinctions among nations, those nations are made up of individuals. So even if this passage were about individuals, which I don't think it is, but even if it were, you don't lose the problem because you still have a nation of individuals where somebody could say, but I wasn't born among that nation. Why is God unfair to me? So that's one reason. The second reason is that this passage doesn't mention nations, it mentions individuals. This is the way that he's taking this. Is he's, he's not talking here about nations. He's, he's saying, look, I'm, I'm talking about, about uh, Isaac as opposed to Ishmael. I'm talking about Jacob as opposed to Esau. The third reason is that the language is that he uses here about, about uh, in verse 11, which we'll get to in a second, about 
um, good actions and bad actions, uh, about works, about things like that, those are things that are about individuals. They're not things that are about nations. Yeah, fourth reason is, well, just some of the verses here in the chapter. Look at verse 18. You have your Bible open, right? Okay. Look at Romans 9.18, which is coming right up. It says, so then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. He's talking about individuals. And then if you go down to verse 24, he says, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. I mean, that's pretty straightforward. He's saying God has chosen individuals from among the Jews to save and individuals from among the Gentiles to save. So he says it. But the fifth and biggest reason why this is talking about individuals is that if you just look at what's going on, if you look at the verses that started Romans chapter 9, and if you look at the argument that continues all the way from beginning of Romans 9 to the end of Romans 11, the whole thing is in response to this hard question, why is it that so few of the Jewish people have embraced the Jewish Messiah? Why is it that so few from Israel have believed in Christ? And the answer that he's giving here would not make any sense if, if it were, well, God has chosen all Israel. That just doesn't answer the question at all. What he's saying is, here is why it is, is because God has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. This is speaking of God's election of individuals to be saved This is also, it's not just Isaac as opposed to Ishmael. It's not just Jacob as opposed to Esau. It's not just individuals in general, but it's also, as it says in Romans 11, we'll skip there just a little bit for now, a chosen remnant at the present time. Romans 11 verses 5 through 7 say this, So too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. That means there is a remnant of believers, and he's especially talking about those within the Jewish people who have been chosen by grace. That's why they believe in Jesus. And he says, if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. And so there is a chosen remnant at the present time, both from among the Jews and from among the Gentiles, those whose faith is in Jesus. Now, we should pray that that number would increase, and God can do that. God can do that. We should pray that God will continue to save people by his grace. And it's through our prayers. That's part of the means that he uses to save people. So we don't just say, oh, it's just a little remnant, that's it, let's give up. That's not the point of this passage. But here is the God-glorifying point of this passage. God is in control. God is sovereign. What do you do with this? Well, above all, glorify God. If, if your heart hears this truth that's being taught to us in Romans 9 and says, there's got to be some way to get around that. And I've got to admit to you, when I first started studying Romans 9 as a 20-year-old, that was my attitude. That was my attitude toward this passage is there has to be some way to get around what it seems to be saying. 
there has to be some kind of a tricky interpretation that's going to put man in the driver's seat of who chooses to be saved instead of God. But if that's our attitude, you know what we need to do? We need to be humbled. We need to submit to what it says, and we need to submit to the sovereignty of God in all things. I was so, so blessed during that time to have a pastor where I sat down with him at lunch one day, and and I said to him, I'm struggling through this thing about predestination and election, and I just don't get it. And you know what he said to me? I wish he had preached this stronger from the pulpit, but what he said to me there at lunch was this. He said, either God is sovereign or he's not. That's the case. Either God is sovereign or he's not. We don't say, yes, he's sovereign in lots of things, but when it comes to individual salvation, well, they get all the control. No, God is sovereign. Let's glorify God. This is a beautiful truth. God doesn't need us, but he chooses us. God isn't under obligation to anybody, and yet he puts himself under obligation to us to serve us for all eternity in Christ. That's an amazing thing for God to choose to save. So that's the subject of God's election. Let's look now at the timing of God's election. Starting in verse 9, once again, where it says, about this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. You know what that is? That's beforehand. That's beforehand. It's saying God had chosen Isaac before he was conceived, before he came into being. And then, and then, and then you go and, and you see having to do with the next set of kids that he distinguishes between Jacob and Esau. They were going to be twins together in the womb, but it says, though they were not yet born, before they had ever been born, God said, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated, the older will serve the younger. He had this laid out. He had chosen from before, before man exists. Some other places you see this is Jeremiah 1, verse 5, where God says to Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. I knew you. You know what that is? That's the foreknowing that's talked about in Romans 8.29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. God knew us. I just remind you from when we were in that passage, that's not that he knew something about us, that he looked down the tunnel of time and saw. Some, some redeeming quality about us, about what we would or would not do or what we would or would not choose to believe. This is God choosing to enter into a relationship of love with us for knowing us. So this is before man exists. This is not just before man exists. It's not as though God waited until a year before before Isaac was born and decided to choose him then. This is God's purpose from eternity past. Look, look in verse 11, where it says, in order that God's purpose of election might continue. Now, most of the words that you have in your Bible, there's not a whole lot to read into those words, but this word is a really significant word, the word purpose. This is something, when, when you put this together with God, the purpose of God, God's purposes don't change. God doesn't change. 
God doesn't look at how the world is going and then reform his purposes. That's how we are because we don't know how things are going to go and massive things can change where we say, whoa, I was way off base with the purpose of what I should be doing and now I have to reformulate. God doesn't do that. God is God. And so when it says God's purpose, this is God's purpose from eternity past. This wasn't God's purpose from 10 minutes before he created the world. This is God's eternal purpose within who God is. His purpose of election, and it will stand, and it will continue. It will continue. It, it says in Romans 8.30, those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. Or another way to put it is in Revelation 13.8 where we're told that those who will be saved have their names written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb that was slain. This is before the foundation of the world. This is something to reflect on. This is something to glorify God about. If you've come to faith in Christ, do you know when God chose you? Eternity past. This is God's purpose of election. That's amazing. Your name was on his heart from eternity past, and he will fulfill his purposes of salvation for you. But what's the reason for God's election? We've talked about the subjects, we've talked about the timing, but why? Why does God choose some and not others? Why? This is one of the things that sometimes people will use to object to the idea of election is that, well, that means that then if you're saved and you believe in election and predestination, then, then you must be really arrogant. You must be really arrogant because you think that you're special, that God chose you rather than somebody else, and there must be something about you that's way specialer about you. Well, guys, that's the opposite of what the Bible says. God loves to choose Completely unremarkable, unspecial people. That's more likely why he chose you. Is <laughs> because it's going to be to the glory of God alone. Here's what it says in these verses. It says in verse 11, Though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad. Now when it says not yet born, I want you to remember what it says in verse 12. We kind of, I don't know, I'm jumping back and forth in these verses a little bit, but it says the older will serve the younger. There's nothing about birth status that would be the reason why God would choose someone to be saved. There's, there's a little bit of a dust up right now in popular culture over birth status because there's a, one of the British royals just published a book where he's complaining about, about being the second born son. I won't name him. You have no idea who I'm talking about. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, I mean, boy, what, what a hard life to be the prince, but not to be the, the one who's in line for the throne. Oh, man, that stinks. We all feel so, so bad for him, don't we? But guys, you do see in a situation like that that there's, there were, I mean, th this was common and and you see it carried over in places like British royalty for there to be a favored status of the firstborn son. A favored status. But it says right here, God said the older will serve the younger. God flipped it around. God didn't say, well, by birth status, I can see that this is the person I should save. No, 
He flipped it around for His glory and not for man's glory. You can't, you can't say to yourself, well, God has obviously chosen me because I was born the children of, of faithful Baptist parents. Or God has chosen me because I was born to this background or that background. No, 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 no. God loves to save people from an unlikely birth status. Not because of birth status, not because of good or bad qualities. He says before they had done anything good or bad. Before they had, there had ever been any opportunity to show, well, this is the good kid and this is the bad kid. No, God set his love on them not because of that. And it says not because of works. It says that in, at the end of verse 11, not because of works, but because of him who calls. There, there have been those throughout history who have said, well, God chooses based on his knowing in advance that these are the people who would do virtuous works. That's not it. It says it's not it right here. That's not it. So, so what is it? It's not about good actions or religious actions or birth status, good qualities, anything like that that God would foresee. Here's what it is. It's God's purpose. God's purpose. In order that God's purpose, and you would say to yourself, but why? But why? And the answer that God gives us is, because I said so. Because it is my purpose. That's not for you to search out. And that ought to cause us to take a step back, drop to our knees, and praise God in humility and say, God's ways are deeper than my ways. And I want to praise God for his eternal purposes that are so much greater than mine. It's God's purpose, and the way that he puts it is not because of works, but because of him who calls. It's God's purpose worked out in God's call. When God has chosen to save someone, just as he said back in chapter 8, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined, and those whom he predestined, he also called. This is what God does. God intervenes in their lives. God does what Jesus talked about in John 3, where he said, Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes, so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. That's being called. That is the Holy Spirit doing the mysterious work of taking someone from death to life, making someone born again, calling them to himself through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ who shed his blood for that person. It's because of his purpose and it's through his call, and ultimately, it's for God's glory alone. It's for God's glory alone. Let me read you some other passages related to this. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 28 and 29. I mentioned a minute ago, it's more likely because you were not awesome. Here's where I'm getting this. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. He says, here's the ultimate purpose, to put away any temptation that you had to boasting. And to say, no, this was by grace alone that you have been saved. Grace alone. 
And he says at the end of that chapter, therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. That's the purpose of God's election. Or as it puts it in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. And then He says what it's all for, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. He says this is what it's for, to the praise of His glorious grace. That's the point. You were made to glorify God. And believer, you were saved to glorify God. And when you reflect on the fact of what it says here about God choosing who to save, let that be something that would stir up in your heart love because God has first loved you. Because God would show us His glorious grace and move us to praise Him for it. Glorify God. And when we get to verse 13, we need to talk about God's election and God's love. This is the hard verse here, right? Verse 13, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. This makes us ask the question, does God love everyone? Because I think most of us from the time that we were very small children have been taught God loves everyone. And the answer to the question is, is that true? And let me just answer that by saying yes and no. Yes and no. There is a sense in which the Bible does teach that God loves everyone. Let me just read you what Jesus says in Luke 6, verse 35. Jesus says, Love your enemies. And do good, and lend, expect nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Do you know what Jesus just said? He said, I'm just paraphrasing here, love your enemies because God loves His enemies. And the kind of love that He has is a love of mercy, toward his enemies, toward, you might even say, toward the reprobate. All of us were his enemies before he brought us to faith, before he called us, but there are those who will remain his enemies for all eternity. And even them, it says that he is merciful to them. It says, the version of this in Matthew says that we are to do this because God sends the rain on both the just and the unjust. And so he has a kind of love in that way. But there's another way that's spoken of here in Romans 9.13 where we can also answer that question, no, in another sense. Does God have an eternal saving love toward everyone? The answer to that is clearly no. Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now there are those who come to this and try to resolve the difficulty of these words in a lot of different ways, and the most common way that I've heard, and you've probably heard it also, is that what it really means is, Jacob I loved, but Esau I loved less. I mean, I suppose that's true. But would you also say, 
Esau I hated, but Jacob I hated less. Well, if you wouldn't say that, then it doesn't make sense the other way around either. What this really shows us is that Jacob has been chosen. Jacob has been chosen for God's eternal love and salvation. And Esau has been chosen for God's eternal reprobation and condemnation to be left in his sins, to die and to suffer for an eternity in hell justly under the righteous wrath of God. Now, when we get to the passages that follow this one, we're going to answer some of the objections that that naturally raises. Because there are objections. One of those objections is, is there injustice on God's part? That's the question that's raised in verse 14. One of the questions is, why does God still find fault for who can resist his will? That's the objection that's raised in verse 19. Those are going to be answered, and we'll look deeply at the answers that the Scriptures give to those questions in the next couple of weeks. But we just want to also know, what is that love? When it says, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated, well, it's a love that is eternal. It's a love that the Father ordained. It's a love that it says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. That's 1 John 3, 1. It's a love that God the Son, Jesus Christ, has accomplished for us. In Romans 5, 8, it says that God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's that love that plays out, as it says in Romans 8, in Christ and His love for us. If God is for us, who can be against us? Who did not spare His own Son but gave Him up for us all? How will He not also with Him graciously give us all things Who will bring any charge against who? Against God's elect. It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. It's a love that God has placed on us in love. He predestined us. He chose us, it says in Ephesians 1. It's a love that's played out, purchased in the blood of Christ. And it's a love that's applied to us by God the Holy Spirit. Romans 5.5, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. He does this. God loves, and in the way that he's talking about there in verse 13, is his electing love. His choice to put his love toward a sinner and save them by His grace to the praise of His glorious grace for all eternity. And when it says, Esau, I have hated, that raises a question, what does that mean? Well, it doesn't mean that God was determined to make every aspect of Esau's life as miserable as it could possibly be. That just wasn't the case in Esau's life. He had some hard times. He had some good times. God was merciful to him. He sent the rain on the just and the unjust. He showed a lot of kindness toward Esau. But here's what it does mean. It means that God's purpose for Esau was not to show his grace in eternal salvation from his sins. God's purpose for Esau was to show his justice in eternal destruction for his sins. God will receive eternal glory for every soul, whether it's to the praise of his glorious grace for those he saves, or whether it's to the praise of his glorious justice for those he does not. Jacob he loved, and Esau he has hated. 
God had a purpose beforehand for Esau that Esau would not be among the elect, but among the reprobate. As I said, yes, there's all kinds of questions that this raises. Most of them are answered in the rest of chapter 9. We'll go there. You're welcome to go study it. I hope you will. (laughs) I hope you'll go home and say, wait, how does he answer these things that are coming up in my mind? Is God unfair with this? And the answer is, God is God. I'll just sum that up. I say That's what he's going to say. God is God. But there is the question this. Does God love me? If it says, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated, how do I know if I'm one that God loves and not one that God would leave under his justice and his punishment and his condemnation for all eternity? A couple things there. No matter who you are, the Bible says that God is already showing you a kind of love right now. A kind of love. That kind of love that we talked about just a minute ago where Jesus said, love your enemies. Here's one thing he's done for you. He has given you life and breath in all things. That's what it says in Acts 17. He hasn't destroyed you even though you're a sinner. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. The fact that you are a sinner, you may just kind of cast that off flippantly and say to yourself, well, nobody's perfect. Well, okay, but do you know that the fact that we're not perfect means that we deserve to drop into the fires of hell at this moment? And that the only thing that's holding us up from that is the righteous, benevolent, merciful hand of God to keep us here, and that as long as you are here, you have an opportunity to turn to him in faith and to be saved. So yes, there's a kind of love towards you, even if you're not a believer today, because he still has you here. And he still reaches out his hand and says to you, out of the lips of Jesus, come to me, all you who are weak and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That is a mercy that he's shown. And you need to receive it. You need to see the mercies that he's given you in this life, and you need to, as it says in Romans 2.4, not to presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. So look at that. Come to him and live. And another thing I'll ask before we get to you believers who are wondering whether God loves you, and I'll just say the answer is yes, but... What about your loved ones? I've found just in in practical experience as a pastor that nine times out of ten, when somebody has an objection to the doctrine of election, it's not because they've done a deep study of Scripture and come to the conclusion that this is not what the Bible teaches. It's because they don't want to think that God has not elected this person that they love. They don't want to think that it could be possible that God would have anything to do with their loved ones slipping away into eternity apart from Christ. So what about my loved one? Well, let me tell you, we don't know with certainty that any unbelieving person, and by unbelieving person I mean you look at them and right now they don't believe the gospel, we don't know with certainty that they are not among the elect on this side of eternity. Because do you know what you and I once were believers? We were unbelievers before we came to faith. If God will save someone, then he will save them, and he's going to do it at some point in time, and he's going to do it through your persistent 
preaching of the gospel to them. That, that's how God saves people. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. So keep telling them the gospel. And even when they have slipped into eternity, we don't know. Maybe they have placed their faith in Christ on their deathbed, and we don't know. So just know that. It's not for us to be able to look around and to know who and is, who is and is not elect. It's for God to know that, and it's for us to tell the gospel so that people can be saved. So that's one thing, just about our loved one. But So keep on praying for their salvation. Keep on telling them the gospel. But then there's the question, what about me? What about you? What, you know, believer in Christ, does God love you? Well, if you have today faith in Jesus, repentant faith, where you know that it is because of your sin that Jesus was crucified on the cross, you know that he is Lord, that he is God the Son, that he has died for our sins, that he has risen from the dead on the third day, that he's ascended into heaven, you trust in him and not in yourself as your Savior and your Lord. If you know that, you are elect. God loves you. Here's what it says in 1 John 4.19. We love because he first loved us. If you have come to love Jesus in faith, the reason is because he chose you. He first loved you. Or here's another passage that says the same thing in more words. 1 Thessalonians 1, 4 and 5. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Now, how does Paul know that these believers in, first, in, in, in the church at Thessalonica were loved by God and chosen? He says, here's the reason. Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. He says, we know because you've come to faith in Jesus. That's how we know God loves you, that you're among God's elect. But if you don't have Christ today, come to him. Come to him. Here's what Jesus says as he's preaching the doctrine of election and also calling sinners to himself at the very same time in John 6.37. He says, all that the Father gives to me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Here's what you do. Come to Jesus, and he will never cast you out. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today for these deep things. Lord, in some ways, there are aspects of this that are completely unsearchable and unknowable on this side of eternity and are the things that are not revealed to us that belong to you alone. But God, you've also told us about these things, and you've told us that the revealed things are for us and our children forever. So we thank you for the opportunity to make an open declaration of the truth and not to shrink back from declaring the whole counsel of God. I pray that the doctrine of election, as it's taught in Scripture, would be something that would sink into our hearts, not for the purpose of winning doctrinal arguments or something like that, but for the purpose of humility and love and praise of your glorious grace. Thank you for saving us by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We pray that he would be glorified. God, I pray that if there are those who have not come to you, maybe you are calling them in this moment, and we thank you for that. And I pray that they would come to you and never be cast out. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.